Welcome to the 33rd episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. I'm David Helvarg here with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Well, hello there. And today we're talking with renowned ecologist and marine scientist, Dr. Jeremy Jackson, sometimes known as Mick Jagger of marine biology for his engaging public appearances. His TED Talk on the ocean, for example, has been viewed over half a million times. Along with awards, honors, and publications, he's done major work for Scripps Institution of Oceanography, the Smithsonian, and the American Museum of Natural History. So, uh, Jeremy, regarding your latest book, Breakpoint, Reckoning with America's Environmental Crisis, that you co-authored with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker calls your book Ultimately Hopeful. So let's start there. Are you, in fact, hopeful for the future of our blue planet? I, I'm, I'm worried as hell, but I'm also hopeful. I see a lot happening, which is encouraging to me. And I also think we underestimate the ability of natural uh, systems to respond to perturbations. And we're just the latest in many perturbations. My original education is as a geologist. Um, geologists take a long view. I'm incredibly encouraged by a lot of things that are going on, in particular in terms of renewable energy, which I think is now taking hold faster than I, I thought it ever was going to. And, you know, this isn't the first time that there's been fairly quick climate change. In terms of thinking about coral reefs, I'm very taken by a paper that was published 10 years ago that uh, demonstrated that in the um, last interglacial, uh, Earth was, we, we've known this for a while, Earth was a lot warmer than it was, say, 50 years ago on Earth. Um, sea level was three meters higher. You can tell that from all the terraces that ring islands like Jamaica, that, where the highways run on the tops of the old reef flats. And um, the only way that sea level could have risen that much more would have been that there was that much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so it's pretty, pretty clear that temperatures 125,000 years ago were as bad as they've become now with the global warming we've seen so far. And what's really interesting is Carl's just moved north. You know, the, um, the peak of diversity of reef corals was actually at the top of the, the subtropical zone instead of in the tropics. So there is this kind of ability for organisms to move around the planet, and uh, as, at least in the ocean where there aren't any uh, really, really bad barriers. And so from an ocean scientist perspective, I think the oceans are going to do just fine. How well we'll do is, is another question. Um, as witnessed by all the hell that's going on out where you live. I mean, as the West runs out of water, which it is doing, and, and as the temperatures rise and the fires burn and, and all that sort of thing, and our breadbasket, or not so much our breadbasket, but our vegetable basket. And, and so much of our food comes from the watering of a desert, which of course was insane to begin with. So in terms of the impact on us and our civilization as we know it, we're in for a really bad ride. And the sooner we get our act together about it, the better. But as an ecologist and as a person who loves biodiversity, I'm concerned. I'm very, very concerned. But I think it's all going to come out sort of okay. So what you're basically saying is, well, we're going to suffer wildfires and intensified hurricanes and tornadoes. 
that really what we've done to the atmosphere is no worse than what it was 125,000 years ago. Well, in the ocean, I don't know so much about the land. I would say on the land, it's a lot worse because of our folly, you know? I mean, the oceans are harder to screw up than the land. And so, you know, when you cut down all the trees or when you destroy the topsoil in the Midwest and you guarantee another dust bowl is on the way, or you pump out all the groundwater like an idiot because you want to produce milk in California instead of Wisconsin, where they have plenty of rain and plenty of hay, but you can do it for a few cents cheaper a gallon. And, and so you wipe out the dairy industry in Wisconsin and now you pay the price. I suppose California will wake up and destroy all its agriculture and then you'll have plenty of water for people, but you won't be able to grow you know, rice in a desert, which was pretty stupid to begin with. So we'll adapt, or at least countries with the wealth and the resources to adapt are going to just go through a lot of pain and come out on the other side. Northern Africa, the Sahel, the, the sea level rise uh, for Bangladesh and large parts of India, those things are horrific. And it's even getting to the point where a few tiny places on earth, the combination of the temperature and the humidity literally makes them uninhabitable. And you know, Doha, they're already air conditioning the outdoors in some of the oil states in the, in the Middle East. Well, that's sort of a short-term solution. And, and I don't know how long people are gonna to wanna to stay there. I think the mass migrations of people are gonna be very disruptive. So I've gone into my doom and gloom mode, but, but yes. as far as I'm a lot less worried about biodiversity than I am about the state of humanity, because we, we seem to be so slow in, in realizing the magnitude of the threat to the way we live. So Jeremy, we definitely got the doom and gloom, and it's overwhelming. And David and I certainly agree. We're not in disagreement at all. But to change the conversation a little bit, once you know the problem, you can begin to address it. So what would you say are some of the priority things that we need to do to get on top of this and protect our ocean? Uh, to protect our ocean specifically, to protect anything, we've got to get real about renewable energy. That's the one, two, three, to, or A to Z of the, the first step. And I'm really excited about things I see. I see this country, of all things, moving to electric vehicles. And I see solar and wind are cheaper than new oil or gas-powered power plants. And money talks in America. Money talks in capitalist society. So I really do see the energy transformation happening rapidly. And, you know, countries like Norway that don't have a lot of sun, they have a lot of wind. They also have a lot of oil, which they're going to have to figure out how to exist without selling. But more than half of all the cars in Norway are electric. This is something... It can happen very quickly. We've got to worry about the batteries and we don't want to mine the deep sea to make the batteries a little bit cheaper. But there's, there's enough of the, the minerals we need on land to, to make all those batteries. And the technology is improving. So the energy sector, I think, is going in the right direction. And if Joe Biden gets reelected or another Democrat gets elected, uh, that will be enough time for that transformation to really become irreversible. Okay, the ocean. We sure as hell have got to stop overfishing in a lot of places, uh, if for no other reason that we actually want to eat fish. I'm very encouraged by the, the research that has gone into the notion 
of closing the high seas. Because although the numbers vary from person to person, the expert opinion is that somewhere between about one, one and a half percent and less than 5% of all the food, fish food we eat comes from the high seas and it tends to be the fancy expensive stuff, which is why a few rich countries can afford to go out and get the last bluefin tuna. But um, the vast majority of what we eat that comes from the ocean comes from the exclusive economic zones. And closing the high seas is something that is now being seriously discussed at the United Nations. In some version, it's gonna happen. Um, I think because the big countries with the power to say, you will do this, are converging on some sort of agreement about how to get there. It's not going to happen overnight, but it, it's probably going to happen in five to 10 years, at least partially. And that's going to make an enormous difference as the world's largest marine protected area. And since most of the species that are in the exclusive economic zones also occur in the high seas, it becomes uh, a breeding population for the, the coastal fisheries of the world. And again, just for people who don't know, uh, the exclusive economic zones are 200 nautical miles off of coastal states, coastal nations. Uh, it really got going in the 1980s. It now covers about a third of the world's ocean. And the irony, of course, is that they were created because of things like the Cod Wars and the Russian fleets off of the coast of Canada and the United States. And they were set up so that the United States could destroy its own fisheries instead of Russia doing it for them, right? And that's um, an important thing for us Americans. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, the, the, we have wisened up. Um, I never thought I'd say this 10 years ago, but I think the National Marine Fisheries Service really is trying very, very hard to rationalize U.S. fisheries. And I think there are a lot of very smart people working on trying to improve regulations and do all of that. But I think the fact that we can have this conversation and that these things are going on is a sign of a major shift in attitudes, that the environment has risen to being a major issue, top of the agenda in economic matters across the country. That's the sound of a coastal wetland Wetlands and salt marshes provide vital habitat and nurseries for fish, birds, and other wildlife. They act as filters and sponges to clean and store groundwater and protect us from storm surge and wind damage. Unfortunately, unwise development and sea level rise have put coastal wetlands at risk. That's why the Sierra Club Marine Team supports proposals like the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act, that would invest in restoring natural coastal systems in order to protect our communities while providing needed jobs. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of our environment is salty. Tell us a little about your background, how you came first to the ocean and then to, from geology to ecology to studying coral reefs in the Caribbean. So I was going to college at night and until my senior year, all the way through night. And the same year I took the paleontology class, I took an oceanography class taught by somebody from the Office of Naval Research from nine to 12 on Saturday mornings and I, all year. And I swear to God, I didn't miss a single class because the guy was good and I was fascinated. And I, so I, 
And my father was a sea captain. I mean, so I grew up with great interest in the oceans, but I actually fell in love with the oceans as a scientist, as a function of the combination of the paleontology and the oceanography. Which you so learned there. I got a master's in geology, then I went to Yale, I did a PhD in geology and biology, and I got a job in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Johns Hopkins, straight out of graduate school. You could do that then. And I was there for 13 years, and I taught the course Principles of Ecology. And that was the most important intellectual thing I ever did in my life, because I went from having this sort of narrow focus on what I'd done for my PhD, um, having been educated by Evelyn Hutchinson and a lot of other people in ecology, but still, you know, having a somewhat narrow view, and then boom, I have to teach all these smart ass kids, I worked for a year to put together a course that I taught for 11 of the 13 years I was at Hopkins and Principles of Ecology. And that just broadened my perspective on how the natural world works or worked past tense. And at the same time, I embarked on a research program on coral reefs, mostly in Jamaica. And I became very well known from that work. I did competition on coral reefs and how species interact, but all very academic stuff. And, you know, I, I wasn't really worried about the environment. I was living in the pool's paradise that all ecologists were still living in who worked in the ocean. And then we had a hurricane, Hurricane Allen in Jamaica in what the year was that? 1980. And it was a category five and it devastated the reefs of the north coast of Jamaica, where the Discovery Bay Marine Lab was where I had done all my work, and so had like 50 other people. So the best studied coral reefs in the world, I mean, now those are Australian reefs. <clears throat> in the 60s, 70s, into the early 80s, the best studied reefs in the world were in the Caribbean. And Jamaican reefs were the best studied of any reefs in the Caribbean. And so we had all this before data. And so I and a couple of other people got permission to divert some grant money, and we brought people back. And we did this intensive study of the damage caused by the hurricane. And we published that paper in Science, about 20 of us. And in that paper, we predicted how the reefs would recover because, you know, we were smart ass, best and brightest. We knew how the reefs worked. And of course, they didn't recover. And the reason they didn't recover was because of people. And the fact that the reefs had been overfished and that, you know, and then there was a disease of the sea urchin, which was the last grazer. And I won't go into all the gory details, but we had disrupted the natural balance of the reefs. You know, climate change starts to kick in on top of this trophic imbalance. And that's what turned me into a doom and gloomer, you know? I mean, because I loved coral reefs, I'd spent all my professional career studying coral reefs. And when you watch something you love die, it sort of makes you angry. And it was a wake-up call. And I uh, actually, I'm working on a book right now on this. I'm writing a book called Hot Countries, and it's sort of a series of all the things I've worked on in my life. And the first section is about coral reefs. And so it starts out with all the scientific wonder, you know, just first of all, Discovery Bay and the people I met, and then the fact that there's so many species, and then the sort of nature red and tooth and claw interaction. How do all those species coexist? But then the fourth chapter is called Hurricanes and Oil Spill, because, you know, that's what happened to my life. There were the hurricanes that wiped out Jamaica, 
And then there was the oil spill that wiped out Panama. And in both cases, natural recovery didn't happen because of all the other stuff we've done. So I guess what I'm trying to say for coral reefs is it's going to be bad. And yes, lots of reefs are going to die. But coral species aren't going extinct. And they're moving. You know, there's a lesson from what happened in forests in North America. There's a, a guy, gosh, I'm trying to remember his first name. It's terrible. I know him well, but his last name is Jackson, like mine, and he's a a paleoecologist of forests, and he demonstrated in a series of really important studies that as the ice sheets retreated and forests developed further and further north, the individual tree species migrated at vastly different rates. And so he describes what he calls non-analog communities of forests where you get mixes of trees you'd never find together now. And that was because they were moving north as the ice retreated at different rates. So I can see the possibility of that happening in higher latitudes for corals. Um, Whether or not those corals will form anything as magnificent as the Great Barrier Reef or the Belize Barrier Reef, um, probably not, but who knows. You know, I, I'm hearing you and, and what you're saying is we're going to have significant changes and we've already seen them. Um, but some of the species are a little bit more rigorous. Some will move around and we'll have still have an intact ocean. But we really do need to reduce so many of the other impacts like overfishing and pollution, plastic pollution, the whole range, and then really supporting marine protected areas. And the idea of the high seas, in addition to other nations and even states putting together some type of high level protection could really help counter some of these impacts. It's actually starting to make a difference, not could. And that I think is, you know, um, my dear wife, Nancy Knowlton has become Ms. Earth Optimism and People love her for it. And she's had a big effect on me, although I still think she wears rose-colored glasses a little too often. But um, her shtick, her her message, which is is getting a lot of traction, is some things are working, even amid all the other stuff. There are a lot of things that are working. And that's what she's doing is reminding people of it. And, you know, one of her really funny examples is we were all together at an oil spill, post-oil spill meeting on the Gulf Coast. And she got up to give her optimistic talk. And during that talk, she said, so how many of you people know about the restoration of Tampa Bay? You've probably heard her say, tell the story. Nobody in that audience, we were meeting in Tampa, St. Petersburg. And nobody in the audience knew that the people of Tampa had become, and St. Petersburg had become disgusted by the slime that was Tampa Bay, and they cleaned up their sewage, and the seagrass had not, would recover, had already recovered to the same level that it had in the 1950s before they overpolluted Tampa Bay. And, you know, Nancy said, what's wrong with you people? Don't you read the literature? I mean, don't you know that right here where you are is an enormous success story? And the seagrass brought the turtles back, which brought the hammerheads. So Tampa Bay, once again, is not shark infested, but shark enhanced because of that. That's That's right. You tell. And And of course, you could tell us tell us who Nancy is since we've we've interviewed her on the show before. But 
your mentioning yeah. your wife the eco optimist. My wife met at Discovery Bay. She was a uh, hot, young, gorgeous woman from University of California at Berkeley, uh, who probably demonstrated that I t- did not understand modern evolutionary theory. And a huge argument we had, and I had to eat crow. And uh, we had a very tumultuous relationship, but we finally decided we could stand each other and we permanently, and we got back together because there's a long story there in 1980 and got married in 83. And we moved to Panama from me at Johns Hopkins and Nancy at Yale. So we could be together. Best thing we ever did living in the tropics. And I think one of the best things you ever did, I wrote about it in my book, Blue Frontiers, you and Nancy kind of reintroduced ecology to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. More than bringing ecology to Scripps, we brought formalization of conservation biology to Scripps. But, um, you know, Nancy prevailed in creating the center. And then she got this amazing IGERD grant, which would pay for two years of people's education. So they didn't have to work for some professor as a slave. They could do their own project. So naturally, we attracted really, really good people. And and um, I created a summer course that combined ecology, governance, and ethics, and all that kind of stuff. And and Reek did his great work in in the Gulf of California. And that synergism was what changed the nature of the ecological research that was done at Scripps. I loved my time at Scripps. You know, I left earlier than I wanted to because my mother was failing. Otherwise, I would have been there a few more years. It's an extraordinary place. And, you know, the the science we all need is what is, is uh, it, it's sort of, um, it, it's earth system science. It's Gaia life. The science we all need is the intersection of physics and chemistry and geology and biology. It's the intersection of the atmosphere and the ocean and the land. It's the intersection elements and molecules moving from system to system that we have the capability of screwing up. And to put Humpty Dumpty back together again with a lot of bandage, we're going to need to uh, really mature our ability to use all these different perspectives. I just want to thank you so much for spending time with us. You're one of my ocean heroes, and it's been a real pleasure to talk with you and hear more about your background and your thoughts. And just thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for joining us on Rising Tide, Jeremy. Yeah, it was great. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helvarg and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein and with the support of Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Cape May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenvarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier
Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky. There you are. Good boy, Sparky.